do that. I don't, I don't always know how things translate um, via YouTube, but uh, that, was, that was an awesome... Was, did you not feel that? That was... I'm just so appreciative of uh, Sam keeping up with me in worship. It is, uh, it is so, it is so enjoyable. Uh, seriously, man, what a, what a great grace and what a good job that uh, that Alan is doing and on all kinds of fronts. I'm just so grateful for people using their gifts and and uh, resources to the glory of God. Just so grateful uh, for our praise team and uh, and our choir when uh, things return to normal. I tell you what, one of the things I missed. So much over this last year was the was the choir, and then the choir shows up again for Christmas, and now not here, and it makes me angry. Uh, no, not really. It's just the nature of the situation. But we have people. I just love to hear our church family lead us in worship, and it's not just uh, the, the the voices; it's the hearts. We just have some really really good sweet people here. And I hope that you appreciate the uh, the effort and the energy uh, that is invested in, in helping all of us to worship together. I, I know that I do. Um, last week, we started talking about Jesus on the Word. And I just started talking about how I really hope that over the next year, we will stay tuned in, not just, just services and Sunday school, although those are priorities. I recognize it's pretty hard to stay connected with the distance. Uh, but my hope is that we'll still, in some way or another, stay connected to the Word. And on days like this, it's even more difficult to get out and about and be connected. And we know that things are, are not well with regards to the COVID situation. It's just, it, it can be difficult to stay connected. But I, I hope that you'll make an effort to intentionally stay in the Word, listening to podcasts, reading the Word, reading books that, that keep you in the Word. We are a Word-oriented church, and I'll tell you why that's the case, because the Word keeps us connected to Jesus, and what you need and what I need and what this nation needs, what we all need is Jesus. And last week, one of the things we saw that I thought was so remarkable is as Jesus was talking to us about how we hear from the Father, how the God, how God speaks to us, he talks about the human testimony of John the Baptist. And he even talks about his own witness in terms of his works and the miracles and his character. And we also, have, of course, now have the resurrection. And that's all fantastic. But Jesus kind of focuses on, hangs out on this most certain testimony which is the scripture, which he describes as the testimony of the Father. And I have to tell you, you cannot out-Jesus Jesus. When we start talking about the Bible, there is not a better way to talk about the Bible, about the Holy Scriptures, than to say they're, they're the Father's testimony. Now, I, I grew up in a, in a season in Southern Baptist life where people debated language over the Bible. Should we call it the infallible Word of God or the inerrant Word of God. And, and I want to suggest to you that there's not a better way to talk about the Bible than the way Jesus talks about it. It's the Father's testimony. Now, I like the word infallible. I think 
I know what people are trying to communicate. That is, it's trustworthy. It won't fail. But I don't like the word infallible because it's like, well, it'll get you by. It won't fail. How many of y'all remember uh, Flex Seal? I don't, is that still around where the, the guy sprays it and it seals all the cracks and everything? And this guy takes a boat and he takes the bottom out of the boat, puts a screen door in the bottom of the boat, and he puts Flex Seal on it, and then he rides his boat out over the lake like this. It won't fail. Well, that's true. Your boat won't sink with flex seal on the bottom. But I'd rather not be driving a boat on a screen door. That's just my personal preference. And I have seen people who actually do the experiment with uh, duct tape where they'll put a raft together. And you can, you can get across a lake on a boat made entirely of duct tape. I'd rather have a better boat. No, no offense. So infallible, it, it works. I guess it doesn't fail. But inerrant isn't really a perfect word either. Now, I know what people are trying to communicate when they use the word inerrant. It, it means there's no error. And if you press me, I'm saying, well, I don't believe there's any error. But inerrant is a word that only applies to propositional truths. You've got to understand this. And most of the Bible is not propositional truth. And even the propositions from the Old Testament have to be interpreted so as to be applied to us in a way that is apparent and, and right and appropriate. When people use the word inerrant, I, I want to do that whole thing out of, uh, what is it, Indigo Montoya from uh, the, uh, remember the Princess Bride? I, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Uh, in what sense can you say the inerrancy of story? or the inerrancy of parable, or the inerrancy of poetry. That doesn't even make sense. If you're going to talk about inerrancy, you have to, most of the time, interpret something into a proposition. And while I do believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, I don't really believe in the inerrancy of everybody's ability to interpret it. And so it's okay, but it's not perfect. You know what the perfect description is? Jesus' description. This is the Father's testimony. And when we understand that it's the Father's testimony, we say, you know what? I believe it because it's from the Father. It's true. And I'm going to allow the Father's testimony to not only hold sway over my thinking, I'm going to allow the Father's testimony to reshape the entirety of my life. And so until we had all this inerrancy, infallibility, talk, on the whole, what you had throughout Christian history was people who would just kneel before the Father and read the scripture, not because they deified the scripture, but because they believed that through the scripture, the Father was testifying. And people said, let me just take this book and work it into my life and weave it together with who I am because this is straight from heaven. I think it just doesn't get any better than that. And by the way, when we talk, talk about weaving the scripture into our lives and weaving our lives together with the scripture... Uh, that's entirely appropriate because the word text in the English comes from the Latin word texteri, which means to weave. And so whenever you're studying the Bible or preaching the Bible or interpreting the Bible, what you're doing essentially is allowing the word of God to be woven into your life in a way that's beautiful. Now, here's what's, what's kind of interesting, though. You have people, especially who are newer in the faith, and you tell them, hey, you need to read the Bible. And, and it, you know, weave it into your life. And, and that just sounds beautiful. 
And we have in mind this particular picture, you know, maybe this wonderful tapestry. We go, oh, you know, it's going to be, it's going to come all together beautifully. And my life is going to be fantastic. When I read the Bible, I'm going to be totally transformed. And then we start reading the Bible. And we get to some kind of weird things. We go, you know, I want to weave it into my life, but it feels like kind of a tangle. And where do I go from here? And so as I give you encouragement to read the Word and get into the Word, I also need to give you a little bit of direction on how to weave the Bible into your life without getting all tangled up in the process because people will get tangled up with the Bible. Now, I'm not going to untangle everything for you in the next 30 minutes, but what I am going to do is give you some direction, or rather I'm going to allow Jesus to give you some direction, direction that comes to us from the Bible in the passage that we began to look at last week, which is John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. Now, before we return to that text, let me just remind you, here Jesus is sort of debating with some very strong religious figures concerning the Bible, concerning the, the Scripture. And what's interesting in all this is we know that Jesus is not a classic liberal where you just, you know, I just make stuff up or it's going to mean whatever I want it to mean. That's obviously not, not true of Jesus. Jesus wanted to live out everything that was written. It is written, it must, it must come to pass. That's how Jesus related the Bible. He was absolutely under the Father's authority through the Scripture. And yet at the same time, you cannot pigeonhole Jesus as a classic conservative because the people that he's debating with, the Pharisees, believe the, the Bible in a quite orthodox way. They, they believed it was from God to the point where actually if you're a rabbi, you memorize the first five books of the Bible. And they're big books. You know, it's the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They'd learn all of them. And, and I can understand trying to memorize Genesis because Genesis is pretty cool. It's got the, you know, the, the creation and the fall and the flood and the patriarchs. But you are a really special person if you want to memorize all of the genealogies. I mean, really, I'm just saying. I've told you this and I'm, I'm trying to follow through and I want to read through the entire Bible out loud, just, you know, devotionally. And the, the really sad thing about this is when I come to the genealogies, which, you know, I'm on the front end of this, I have to spend twice as long in the portions that I want to spend half as long in or just kind of skip over. I mean, it, it's not even fun to read the genealogies, let alone memorize them. That's how this, the, the Pharisees thought. They felt this is worth learning. And there were some Pharisees that were of special recognition who had memorized the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. They take the Bible seriously. And Jesus, in this passage, is taking them to task. He is spanking them, so to speak. Now, what this communicates to me, and I think what it needs to communicate to you, is if we are going to hear Jesus for what he's saying, we can't, we can't just take what Jesus teaches and, and instantly add it to what we already think to be true. Jesus oftentimes does teach us things we didn't know, but oftentimes he'll challenge us to rethink things that we thought we knew. There's oftentimes a deconstruction that happens in our thinking. That is to say, we don't often have the paradigms that are appropriate. You put new wine into new wineskins, not new wine into old wineskins. Sometimes he has to blow apart what we thought happened to be true. You have to hear Jesus saying, not just think this, but he, you have to hear him oftentimes saying, don't think this. Don't think in this way. And this is one of the things that he says to the, to the Pharisees. He says, do not think. I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes rest. 
Again, what is so interesting here is he's taking the task people who would have considered themselves to be very orthodox. And so it's not enough for you and it's not enough for me to simply say, oh, I think I have the orthodox way of looking at the scripture. I look at it all right. I'm a, I'm a conservative person. You can have a conservative view of scripture, but if you're not using the scripture in the appropriate way, you don't actually have the word of God. Let me put it to you as it's on the screen. If you have the right view of scripture, but you don't have the right use of scripture, you really don't have God's word. Now, this is this is profound. This is significant. You can't just know the right thing. You have to use the right thing in the right way. Jesus says this much to the Pharisees. Now, before we jump into this with too much depth, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. The text is John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. And Jesus isn't saying you can't trust me. He's simply saying, I recognize in a court of law, a, a testimony cannot be established by the testimony of one. So let these other sources testify. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I know his testimony about me is valid. You have sent John. This is John the Baptist. And he's testified about me. He's testified about the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enter his light. I have a testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. Here he's pointing to his work, maybe his character, his miracles, and now we have the resurrection. Jesus doesn't just testify in terms of his word, but with his life. Look at this. But then there's another. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. There's the Father's testimony. What's he talking about? The scripture. And you have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. He's talking to Pharisees, again, who've memorized the scripture. They've internalized the Bible. But nor does his word dwell in you. Why would he say, you don't have his word? Here's why. For you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently search the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you do. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes only from God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And God bless you in his word. You may be seated. Now, here's the question. The question we're going to ask and hopefully at least begin to answer. How do we, lead, how do we weave the Bible together into our lives uh, without getting all tangled up? And I'm going to give you the two basic answers and then we'll spend some time unpacking the, these things. Uh, number one, make a focused attempt to allow the Bible to shed light on Jesus. And then you allow Jesus uh, to shed light on the Bible. Or put a little bit differently, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega of scriptural understanding. He is the point 
to which all of the scripture points, and he is the one who enables us to understand it appropriately. He is the lens, not just that we look at, he is the lens through which we look at the Bible. Or put a little bit differently, if you are going to understand the scripture the way Jesus would have you to understand the scripture, you must be radically Christocentric, Christ-centered when it comes to the Bible. All right, let's, let's unpack these things one at a time. First, make a focused attempt to allow the Bible to shed light on Jesus. Jesus himself says that the Bible has a point, the scripture has a point, and the point is Jesus. He's the one to whom the whole thing points. Now, this is important, and I want you to recognize that when it comes to these other testimonies, and we'll just draw the connection between John the Baptist and the Bible. When it comes to the testimony of John the Baptist, you recognize John is saying, I'm not the one. You go through the New Testament, and you read about John the Baptist. People would come to John, and they would say, are you the one? He said, I'm not the one. Are you the one? No, no, I'm not the one. I bear witness to the one, but I myself am not the one. I'm bearing witness to the one whose sandals I'm not fit to untie. There's one who comes after me who is before me, but I'm testifying to him. I'm not pointing to me. I'm pointing beyond myself to Jesus. In the same manner, the Father's testimony points beyond itself to Jesus. If you read the Bible as if the testimony is all about you or the testimony is even primarily about itself, you're not reading the Bible the way that Jesus says you should read the Bible. Because what Jesus tells the Pharisees is, these are the scriptures that testify about me. They, these are the scriptures that point to me. Every time you, you read the Bible, in some respect or another, it's pointing to Jesus. If you don't see all of the stories or all of the laws, all of the commandments, all of the psalms, if you don't see all of the poetry, if you don't see all of the Bible, all of the prophecy, in some respect or another, pointing to Jesus... You're not reading the scripture the way Jesus says the scripture should be read. Now, I don't want to oversimplify things. This is simple, but I don't think it's an oversimplification. It's all about Jesus. Let me give you some examples here of what I'm talking about. You go to the Old Testament, and and when you get to the New Testament, oftentimes you will see that Jesus is the true Adam. He's the true Abraham. He's the, the, the true Israel. Jesus is the the true David. But you look at all the different stories and Jesus shows up. Okay, For example, Joseph. You go to the Old Testament, here's the story of Joseph. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. There's this great prophecy about Joseph that one day his brother's going to bow down to him. And the brothers don't like it. So the brothers, of course, betray Joseph, throw him in a pit, and they give him to the enemy. And as the uh, enemy mistreats Joseph, of course, he he has a hard time. There's lots of difficulty and misery and suffering in his life. But eventually, he rises up over the suffering by the grace of God. Why does he rise up? Because he trusts in God. And eventually, Joseph is seated at the right hand to the throne of power. And from this position, you know what happens? His brothers come and they bow down before him. And as a result of all of this, the position that's been given to Joseph, there is salvation for his people. There's forgiveness for his brothers, and their lives are saved because he's seated at the right hand of power. Now, if you think that story is mainly about you, here's an example to you. Forgive other people when they're jerks. You know how brothers are. I have a good brother, but let me tell you something. I was the better one. 
And every one of you understands what I'm talking about. Forgive your brother. You know how hard, if you've never had a brother, you don't know how hard that is. And I had a good brother. These were bad brothers. So you just need to forgive people or, or maybe the lesson is just get over it. Or if you have a miserable life, just keep going and trust in God and everything's going to turn out well in the end. If that's your takeaway from the scripture, you're not reading the scripture the way the scripture is intended to be read. Or if you think it, it's somehow just about itself or this is a really interesting story in and of itself. Okay, well, okay, that's true. It's kind of interesting. And you should forgive and you can make it through to the, to the other side. But here's the big point. There's a true Joseph. There is one who was betrayed. And, and guess what? You're not the hero of the story. When we read stories, most of the time we want to put ourselves in the hero's position. We're not the heroes in most of these stories. In fact, we're the villains. We're the ones who betrayed him. He came to that which was his own, and his own received him not. We, we turned him over. He went to the enemy, and he didn't just, he didn't just suffer for a while. And in spite of the suffering, he rose up. It was through his suffering that he was risen to the right hand of the Father. And now that he's seated at the right hand of power, you know what he's in the position to do? He's in the position to forgive. And this is all in accordance with this tremendous prophecy. And in a strange way, in the midst of our cosmic treason, we're actually envious of his position, but we shouldn't be because he didn't want to come and be a lord over us in the way that the world lords things over us. He came to be a servant. And because he was a servant, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, he's now in a position not only to forgive, but to bring about an incredible salvation. All of the Bible points beyond itself to one who's coming. All of the Bible, in some respect or another, points to our tremendous need. You can do that with the stories. You do that with the Psalms. You ought to do that with the law. Let me summarize the law for you like this. It's actually how Jesus summarizes it. He points back to Leviticus chapter 19. There's this wonderful law, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you think that that law points to itself or it just simply points to you trying harder, you do not understand the law. How many of you all have heard of the Universalist Church? Does that ring a bell? You know when they first got started, they called themselves the Golden Rule Christians. You don't have to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. You don't have to pray some prayer or submit to him as Savior. Just do the golden rule. We just believe in the golden rule. We just love our neighbors as ourselves. That's just what we do. Listen, if you think you can just do that, you do not understand the golden rule. You don't get it. You know what the golden rule means? It means that you should meet the needs of your neighbor with all the passion, all of the resources, all of the energy with which you meet your own needs. Does anybody here do that? Really? There's only one person who's ever done that, and it's because it's his nature to do it. That's the nature of God. That's what Jesus did. And last I checked, I'm not Jesus, you're not Jesus, we have fallen short. If you don't see the law as Paul saw it, as the schoolmaster that points beyond itself, pointing us to, to Jesus, then you don't understand the law. If you don't see all of the law, law all of the prophets, all of the stories, all of the narratives of somehow pointing to Jesus, you don't have his word. You're not getting it. Even if you don't have the gospel and you read through the gospels, you're not going to understand the gospels. Because I've seen people say stuff like this. Oh, you know, why, why did Jesus die on the cross? And it's a mystery. And well, I guess he lived as an example. And he, he died forgiving people. He turned the other cheek. And so he died for his enemies. And we need to die for our enemies. And we just need to... You know, we need to forgive, and, and that's all kind of partially true. But if you see the cross of Jesus Christ as merely an example to you to follow, 
and you think that you can do that, you're either going to be, you know, absolutely radically self-righteous and, and, and indignant toward other people who are not as good as you, or you're going to give up in absolute despair because you think, I could never possibly do that, and no, neither of those responses are appropriate. You should not only repent of your sin, but also repent of your self-righteousness, and you'll never give to other people what it is that God wants you to give to other people until you've received for yourself what it is that you need, and until you see yourself as the person who put Jesus on the cross rather than the person who needs to take his place. Your heart is not going to be melted, and you're not going to be transformed. If you don't get the gospel from the gospels, you can look at even the gospels in the wrong way. You don't get the Bible. You don't get the scripture. You don't have his word if you're not using it in the appropriate way. Jesus puts it like this to the Pharisees. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. You've got the Bible memorized, guys, but his word doesn't dwell in you. Why would Jesus say his word doesn't dwell in you? Because you don't believe the one he sent. You can't just read the scriptures like a Pharisee and believe that you have the word of God. It's not just having the right view. It's having the right use. Now, this is not to say that the scriptures are not objectively true. And we drove that point home hard last week. But Jesus put it like this, not the smallest you know, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of him will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus was all about doing the Father's will through the Scripture because he lived under the authority of the Father. He believed it was all true. It was the Father's testimony. But if you're not actually receiving the Father's testimony to where you receive the Son, then you have rejected the Father's testimony even if you've memorized the testimony. That's Jesus' point. So if you're going to actually understand the Bible appropriately, if you're going to let it weave itself into your life without getting all tangled up, you've got to see the Bible as shedding light on Jesus. That's part of it. But the other part is this. You need to make a concerted effort, a focused effort, to allow Jesus to shed light on the Bible. Uh, where do we see this? Well, it's actually all over the place. I don't just need to quote one verse of scripture to you. Look at the entire passage here. Jesus is talking as if, he is behaving as if, he has absolute radical uh, interpretive authority over the scriptures in a way that no other Pharisee, no other rabbi ever had. Look at what Jesus says. You diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And I want you to know something. When Jesus says that, he doesn't quote any scripture. You know why he doesn't quote any scripture in order to support that point? He doesn't need to. He's Jesus. He just tells them, this is how it is. And when Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me, Jesus doesn't quote a verse. He just authoritatively tells them, this is how you should read the scripture. And the words of Jesus, of course, are incorporated into the scripture, which become the scripture whereby we view the other scripture. Because he is the Lord to whom it all points, and he is the Lord who has interpretive authority when it comes to understanding the scripture. Now, what all of this means is, when it comes to the Bible... Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega of Scripture. He's the Omega because he's the one toward which everything points. But he's also the Alpha because he is not just the lens to which everything points. He's the lens through which everything else needs to be viewed in the Scripture. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, you should be radically Christocentric with regards to understanding the Bible. 
Okay, let's get back to this. He's the Alpha. He is the one who helps us to understand the Bible. He is the authority when it comes to understanding the Bible. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's a great exposition of the Old Testament. Constantly, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, you've heard that it was said, don't murder, but I tell you, I tell you, I say unto you. And Jesus, of course, is exposing the scripture, but he's speaking about the scripture in a way that the other rabbis did not. And so when he comes to the end of of all of this, anyone who builds his life on these words of mine, whoever takes these words and puts them into practice is like the wise man. He has elevated what he has just said and what he has just said about Scripture to a place of absolute radical authority in your life. And when he gets to the end of the whole Sermon on the Mount, you can read this. I suggest you do if you've never read it. When he gets to the end, everybody's response is uh, amazement. They were amazed at Jesus because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. When Jesus talks to the rabbis about the Bible, he's not talking on equal footing. He's not talking like they do. He is talking with authority over all of them with regards to understanding the Scripture. When we come to the Bible, it is wrong. It's a common mistake, but it is a, it is a mistake to look at all of the Bible as some sort of democracy where every statement has equal weight and every statement has an equal vote. That's not true. There's a hierarchy within Scripture, and the hierarchy is Jesus at the top of all of this. This is how Jesus read the Bible. This is how Jesus taught us to read the Bible. And this is the way that the apostles read the Bible in a Christocentric manner. With the understanding that revelation that came later would interpret revelation earlier especially the revelation that centers in jesus christ who is the fullness of the revelation of god as it says in hebrews let me give you an example of this remember peter in acts chapter 10 some of you may know the story in acts chapter 10 peter uh, being a self-respecting jew observed ritual law and the reason he observed the ritual law that was recorded in leviticus and deuteronomy is if you violated the jewish ritual law You couldn't participate in the worship and in the life of the Jewish community. And some of the ritual law included not eating the non-kosher Gentile food and not touching the Gentiles and not going to the homes of Gentiles. But then God gives Peter this vision in Acts chapter 10 that very clearly communicates to Peter that that uh, ceremonial law has been lifted. And not only does Peter have a different view of the food, but he has a different view of non-Gentiles. And because of all of this... The ceremonial law having been fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. For the first time in a decade, the disciples are able to do what it is that Jesus had told them to do a decade earlier, which was to go and make disciples of all nations. For a 10 years, for a decade period of time, the disciples didn't go past the boundaries and the confines of Judaism. And God told them, it is time to move forward. You should have moved forward already. They get the message. And now Peter views the Old Testament in a way that he didn't before because of the revelation of the Holy Spirit that is shedding light on the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus read the scriptures Christocentrically. He told the Pharisees to read the book Christocentrically. The apostles read the Bible Christocentrically. You get to the Apostle Paul and he reads and interprets the Old Testament with Jesus in the center. 
When you are a Christian, you read the Bible. It's not like it's okay to read the Bible this way. You should read the Bible with Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega of it all. Now, when we start reading through the Bible, we get to some kind of difficult things. There's some weird things. There's some complexities in all of this. And I'm just telling you that when you read the Bible with Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, it will take you a long way down the road toward reading through the Scripture and understanding it in a way without getting tangled up. So in the time that remains, here's what I want to do. I just want to be very practical with you about why it is so important to read the Bible with Jesus as the center of it all. With Jesus as the Alpha and Omega. And I'm going to mention three things. This pertains to preaching and teaching and personal Bible study and all of the rest. Uh, number one, why is it so important to keep Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega? Number one, it will help you to keep engaged uh, with the Bible. When you come to the Bible looking primarily to meet Jesus, you're going to want to keep coming back. That, at least that's what I've experienced. If you come to the Bible looking primarily to find the list of do's and don'ts or looking primarily to do some theological one-upmanship, you're going to get tired of that. And that's not the way to read it anyways. But when you read the Bible so as to meet Jesus and then you do what it is that you know you should do, then you're doing it out of a grace relationship with Jesus that is growing and not out of some ritualistic obligation or out of your flesh where you either give up because you know you're going to fail or you actually think you're succeeding because you've convinced yourself of a standard that is below the standard of the Bible and therefore you become self-righteous and intolerable and religious. We don't want that. You, you, the people around you don't want you self-righteous and religious. Jesus heals and saves from religion. He doesn't deepen us in it. And the only way you're going to avoid becoming more and more religious is to look for Jesus in the middle of the scriptures. Okay. Number two, and I, I didn't know how else to put this. This doesn't sound very nice. It'll keep you from becoming a wacko. Okay. Now, some of you laugh, and the reason you laugh is because it is painful. You know some religious wackos. Okay, or you've met them, or maybe before you came to Christ, the reason it took you so long to come to Christ is because there were these religious wackos. Or you, you're on Twitter and you follow things, maybe for news feeds or a few things, and you read some stuff and it just like it's so disturbing to you. You go, where did that come from? And you're not trying to be arrogant or rude about it. You just go, that is so strange. That is so weird. You know why people get kind of weird? Because they push Jesus to the sidelines. Anytime we push Jesus to the sidelines with regards to the scripture, uh, it's going to get weird. We're not living or reading in a submissive manner. We're reading in such a way as to use the Bible to advance ourselves or raise ourselves above other, above other people, which always inevitably becomes rather brutal and put-offish and fundamentally uh, wrong. Now, I'm not saying just because we keep Jesus in the center that somehow always we're going to hit the nail on the head. But when you read the Bible as, uh, in, as in a Christocentric manner where Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, it will help you to readily recognize it can't be that. It can't be that. You're not always going to hit the bullseye on the target. And I'm telling you, if anybody thinks, if anybody tells you they've hit the bullseye and they've nailed down all their theology and all the rest... They're either self-deceived or they're willingly deceiving you or maybe it's just both. Sometimes you have to be satisfied with hitting the target. You're not, really, you're not always going to hit the bullseye. Sometimes you have to be satisfied to, to, to shrink the field of possible meaning. And the way you shrink it down and go, well, it's probably in this ballpark, 
is when you're focused on Jesus, he's the one through whom you read the scripture and the one that the scripture points to, you're going to avoid some weirdness. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, Over in, uh, so I'm going to read this to you because I don't want to just kind of quote it willy-nilly. And this is one of those verses I have not memorized. Uh, It's Psalm 130. Well, I failed Bible drill as a child, but I just got right to it. Isn't that amazing? Okay, uh, Psalm 137, verse 9. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Now, most Bible interpreters are going to say, that scripture doesn't have behavioral authority over your life. Now, why are they going to say that? Let me tell you why they'll say that. And they would be right. That contradicts Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. That's one. It contradicts the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, which Jesus reaffirmed in the Sermon on the Mount and deepened in terms of its meaning and application. Number three, that's poetry. And that doesn't mean it's invalid. I'm just saying that there are different rules for interpreting poetry. Poetry is not policy. And beyond all this, if you look at the greater context, you, you know that the one that they're talking about, he who or, or you who, is the uh, is described as uh, daughter Babylon, which is which means you can't just take any old you and put that in there in accordance with what you would desire. So we know that is not a verse. Hey, take babies and throw them against the rocks. That's not a verse that we apply in a direct propositional manner to our lives. And some of you are saying, well, Ernest, what does it mean? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I don't have time. And, uh, and maybe, and maybe that'll come up. Maybe I'll get to that next week. <laughs> right? Uh, I don't, you know, I'm not promising anything. All I'm saying is, you can know really, really quickly. That doesn't have authority in my life. Now, how do you know that? Well, it, again, it's Christocentric reading. Uh, and I don't mean to oversimplify it, but 90% of the time when you read stuff, you, you get the narcissist on TV or the narcissist on Twitter, and they start using scripture to justify their multiple child wives or their Marxist viewpoint or how we need to go to war in the Middle East or whatever the case is, 90% of the time, maybe more, it's simply because the people who've been using the Bible have taken Jesus and they've just pushed him over here. It's not that complicated. And a lot of times when you look at people on both sides of the aisle who you think are, are relatively sane people, if they're using the Bible in such a way as to get people on their side and against that other side and to maybe, you know, get Christians with them, you know what's happening? They've pushed Jesus to the side and they're using the Bible so as to assert themselves over other people. And if you use the Bible so as to elevate yourself over other people, I'm pretty sure Jesus is not in the middle of that. Keep Jesus in the center. And, and, and by the way, it, if you happen to be watching this and you can think of times in your life where somebody misused the scripture and it felt wrong and it was brutal, and I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't have things that are challenging, but if you got turned off to Jesus and to the Bible because somebody in a Christless way used the Bible, you know, look, I'm sorry, but don't reject Jesus and don't reject the Bible because somebody else misused it. 
That's not fair to Jesus, and it's not fair to the Bible. Uh, I, I read something recently. It was an interview of Timothy Paul Jones. Uh, it was an interview concerning a book that he had written last year. It's a book that's entitled, Why I Can Trust the Bible. And it's a great book. I have, I'm telling you, I've not finished it. I've read a part of it. It's, I, I've read enough to know I'm going to finish it. It's really good. came out 2020. Jones, which is a very strong name. Uh, why I Trust the Bible. Look it up. Get it, on, get it on Amazon. Anyways, he's being interviewed about the book, and the person doing the interview asks him, or just makes the comment, I notice, you know, the last chapter of the book has to deal with people and this barrier to faith and a very common barrier to faith being the misuse of the Bible. It's very hard for people. This is, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It's very hard for people who have heard the Bible used to support the Crusades and chattel slavery. It's hard for people who have seen the Bible used in that way to support injustice to somehow trust the Bible and believe in Jesus. What do you have to say to that? And Timothy Paul Jones responds, here's the answer, the Beatles White Album. So already you know, it's a great book. The guy's into the Beatles. And he says, there's the answer. It's the Beatles White Album. And the explanation is, way back when, how many of y'all remember uh, Charles Manson? Does that ring a bell? Remember why Charles Manson did what he did? Now, this is what he said. The reason is the Beatles' White Album. Helter Skelter on that album told him to go murder those people. That's why he did what he did. That's what he, that's what he says. You know what's interesting? Nobody has ever suggested that Paul McCartney go to prison for the death of all those people who were murdered. Even though it was his album that caused Charles Manson to murder these people. You say, well, that's ridiculous. That's the most ridiculous thing. Nobody would... Nobody would accuse Paul McCartney of ordering the deaths of people. Exactly. We have to help people see the Bible in the same way. There are people that would misuse the Bible to support all kinds of crazy notions. That's not a poor reflection, or it shouldn't be a poor reflection, on the creator of the Bible any more than Charles Manson's murder should be a poor reflection on the Beatles. In fact, if you get upset over the Crusades or the way people in America used it to support shadow slavery or whatever the case may be, you need to understand, if God actually gave commands against such injustice, then whatever you feel about whatever it is out there that just seems insane, God not only feels your pain, you're actually feeling his you ever have somebody misuse your name, take your name in vain? That's happened to me several times. And it is incredibly disheartening and irritating for people to attach my name to their own agenda. Imagine how often people take God's name and attach it to their own agenda. Don't let people's abuse of the Bible or Christless interpretation turn you off to Jesus and to the Bible. That's... That's just not fair. So, okay, why is it so important to keep Jesus as the Alpha and Omega biblical interpretation? Well, three reasons. It'll help you to keep engaged with your Bible. It'll help you to keep from becoming, you know, a wacko, a religious nut. And then finally, it will help you to keep from exercising authority over the text. Now, it does strike people as a little strange when I talk about, well, the Bible is not a 
democracy and every idea doesn't have the same weight. No, Jesus is the cornerstone and the apostles are the foundation tied into the cornerstone. And so there is an authority uh, structure within the scripture with regards to how to understand and interpret the scripture. And I had a lady one time tell me that she was leaving the church I was pastoring, and she did. And the reason she told me she was leaving is because I read the Bible and preached the Bible like a Christian. It's like, what? Why is that a problem? So, yeah, when you come to the Old Testament, you should read the Old Testament like a Jew. Really? And, I, and then I told her, it's like, I agree with you. I, I agree we should read the Old Testament like a Jew. If the Jew you have in mind is Jesus, there is an authority there. But that doesn't mean simply because, you know, you, you should read it with the sophistication of somebody who has Christ at the center. That doesn't mean you get to read the Bible in any old way you choose. Actually, to the contrary. If you say the Bible has a point and the Bible has someone who is the ultimate authority, then whenever I read the Bible, I'm putting myself under the authority of Christ. And Jesus put himself under the authority of Scripture. And so it's not up to me to make the text mean whatever I want it to mean. And I can't just say, well, some people think that and I just kind of think this. That kind of willy-nilliness has nothing to do with the way in which Jesus read the Bible. He was so submissive to the Bible, he was so submissive to the Scripture, that he ended up dying on the cross. This is not about, I'm just going to read it in a way that makes me feel comfortable. No, 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 no. When you acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord of Scripture, that actually narrows down the possibilities. That actually makes you all the more willing to submit to things that are uncomfortable. Because what Jesus said in the scripture is anyone who wants to follow me must take up his cross. That's pain. That's suffering. It's not always going to be easy to receive what it is that the Bible says. In fact, somebody put it to me like this. It's not the hard parts of the Bible that are so difficult. It's the easy parts. It's the things that we absolutely know with absolute clarity that God tells us to do. That's what's so painful and difficult. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. In the Old Testament... You know, you would put a sacrifice on the altar after it was dead. It died, and then you stuck it on the altar. We we sacrifice ourselves every day, all the time. Constant living sacrifice. If if you're a real living sacrifice and you're and you're getting slaughtered, the first thing you want to do is jump down off the altar. That is not the way it happens for believers. We submit ourselves like Jesus did, even to the point of death, because we take the scriptures that seriously. You don't get to read the Bible however you want to. I don't get to read the Bible however I want to. Sometimes we're going to make mistakes, but they're going to be honest mistakes, and they're not going to be the kind of interpretation where we say, well, I would prefer for it to mean this, or it means this to me. You don't get to do that because you're not the Lord of Scripture. Neither do I. But oftentimes people will put words into God's mouth, and it is a shame, and it is so sad. And the reason it's so sad is because... The Father's testimony is perfect. You know the Father's testimony? It's Jesus. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. He's the fullness of the revelation of God. You want to somehow change Jesus? What is wrong with you if you're a Christian? There is no better testimony than the Father's testimony. And we would rework that and change that. That's utter foolishness. It's blasphemous. It's a violation of, of the commandment to not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. 
And we put things in God's mouth and we take things out of God's mouth that we disregard his testimony in so different ways. One of the ways that people do it is they'll take a little word out of context or they take a little sentence out of the greater narrative movement of the Bible and completely twist God's word to their own liking and understanding. It's kind of like this. You, you know, you, you've probably heard about Mark Twain, Huckleberry Finn, how some people are like, we've got to ban that book. You know why we ban that book? Because it's got the N-word in it. The N-word's a terrible word. But if you think that Huckleberry Finn is a racist book because of the N-word, you haven't read Huckleberry Finn. That book was like a hundred years ahead of its time. That's not fair. And, and when you read the Bible, you're going to find some things every once in a while. That's just really weird to put off as You've got to read it in the greater context. Because the Bible was over 2,000 years ahead of its time. And the Bible's always been challenging people, and it's always been challenging culture. It's always been moving us to a better and a better place. So it does break my heart when people would interpret anything that I would say or anything that God said in a way that isn't pleasing to the Father or isn't in keeping with Jesus Christ because there is no more perfect revelation than Jesus. So let's read the Bible the way Jesus wants us to read it. Through his lens... And looking to Christ, we're not always going to hit the bullseye, but here's what I know. When you approach the Bible with the humility of, Jesus, you're the Lord. Jesus, you're the interpreter. It's the Father's testimony. Your fa- the Father's testimony has absolute authority over my life like it did over your life. When you come to the Bible, at least with that disposition, you're a true seeker. And when you seek, Jesus says you find. As Hebrews eleven six tells us, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You seek him with Christ at the center, and you'll find Christ. That's what we want. That's what I want for you. Let's bow forward of prayer. Lord, I, I hope that this was not too complicated. I think Jesus' words are simple, but still profound. I just pray, Lord, that as believers, we will not only read your word, we will read your word as believers, that we would come to the Bible in a way that is different than the way the Pharisees came, so that as we read the Bible, your word will dwell within us. Lord, I don't know really what else to ask. I just pray that we will be a people of the word, that we will stay consistent in worship, that we will stay as connected as we can, even in this time of distance. And that we will be, as your people, not just centered around fellowship or hanging out. And these are important things. But we will still, in all things, be word-centered. May your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Because we know that at the end of the path is Jesus. And we need him. May we grow in relationship as we ought. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.